What's up, everyone? Yes, it is I, your host, Natalie Morrison, and you might be thinking, wasn't this called Swim Masters? Well, yes, it was, and you're definitely in the right place. We decided that we wanted to give the podcast a bit of a makeover, and we're so proud to introduce to you Revoicing the Future, a Women of NAM podcast. Don't worry, it's still the same content, still the same hosts. We just wanted to take this to the next level. And we're excited that you're joining us on this fantastic journey. The episode that you're currently listening to was recorded before the name change. And I just wanted to let you know that you are in the right spot. So keep on listening. Be sure to subscribe and stay tuned for all new episodes of Revoicing the Future, a Women of NAM podcast coming soon. Welcome to Swim Masters, a podcast dedicated to help connect, grow, and support women in the music products industry. I am your host, Natalie Morrison. The Smart Women in Music Fund was established in 2018 by Robin Walenta, Dee Dee Hyde, and Crystal Morris to expand diversity, inclusion, and support for women in the music product space. Twice a month, I will sit down and host virtual conversations with various women across our industry to help foster mentorship and growth. Now, without further ado, Let's dive in. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Swim Masters. It's season two. I'm your host, Natalie Morrison. So excited to be back with you. <laughs> and I'm sitting here alongside my trusty sidekick, Stephanie Lamond. We're back. <laughs> season two. We had a nice little hiatus to enjoy the holidays yeah. happy believe in music week Woo! aka not nam <laughs> but what we wish was nam <laughs> Bittersweet. it's fantastic but it's it's so sad at the same time it's, it's so sad but at the same time and i did mention this in the episode i, th- I think i did i don't know but I might be repeating myself. Anyway, I said that I was going on the swap card platform and I was finding like all of these people that I, that I'm friends with in the industry and that I know, and I was sending them messages being like, hi, I should be seeing you this week. So this is my message to you. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, that's, not, that's what's made it feel both real and sad and also real and good. That's not like what I was just saying. Like I popped into Robin Muller, the, uh, nam exec assistants uh, uh inbox just like hi i should be sitting in your office right now but i'm not so this is my my virtual hug how you doing like it's 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 cool i i think i will be so fascinated to see on more of a business side of it at the end of next week what what the social media networking aspect for this more so than like just running into people how that's going to go because i think it's going to bring a lot of people together that wouldn't normally be brought together which is you know also all your blind messages you're getting about <laughs> about people just wanting to talk to Dario. but uh, like how you know uh, technology we were saying this whole year has been the great equalizer in terms of access so like how many people are going to be able to be part of it that weren't so i think at the end of next week we'll have met a lot of people we wouldn't have by just running into them on the show floor so that'll be cool i know i am gonna miss our morning coffee rendezvous before the show opened. <laughs> For everybody that 
has not been part of it. I, I usually work the media center down in Hall E at the entrance. And every morning I'll see Natalie's smiling face popping up before she <laughs> makes the trek back to the D'Addario booth with some coffee. Just like, hi, good morning. How you doing? It's so, it's just like you get these rituals where, and please, please forgive our, are reminiscing about Nam. I hope everybody's also feeling the same way. I've been talking to my boss all week about the same thing, just like our favorite Nam stories as we both miss it and get excited about what it can be. But like, like I see Natalie every morning and then there's also like, I was telling you earlier to our, our, um, as they are, my friend Miranda and I usually work the media center together. And there's a member of the media, Francesco from Italy, and he's a drum photographer specifically, and he's brilliant. But he always slips us pocket coffee, the like chocolate covered espresso candy. And I look forward to it every year. It's been, I like, we're on year like eight or nine of working this show, Miranda and I. So like, we're not working it this year because of COVID, but but it it's been that long that every year I just get I get a little pocket coffee on my desk and like I usually save it because I want it for the last day and then I forget to eat it so I have it like a year later and it's open in my backpack or something but like <laughs> I received it from Amazon from from Francesco from Italy so that's been a sweet little like I don't know if 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 there's any of anybody's little like rituals. We encourage you to find a way to whether it's like Venmoing someone five bucks for a coffee that week or something like find it. It's it could be fun to find ways to still still keep our rituals going for this this virtual believe in music week that we're going to be having and, and make it make it fun. I know. And Stephanie's going to be expecting some photos of me with my coffee. And honestly, I might just go down to Starbucks one morning early and get the coffee that I would normally get when I'm in Anaheim. Just to make it feel as if I'm there. I don't know how many people really know this, but we've known each other obviously through our families, but we started working together on the NAM PR team. I think this is like year seven or six or seven years ago. I don't six years ago. Blowing my mind that that's been that long. That's just, it feels like just yesterday. I know. Look at how far we've come. Yeah, I know. Well, that's what that means. Like you were saying, your first year was 2015. First year was 2015. And I was like, oh my God, that means I've been out of college for like six or seven years. Like it's uh, so, it's, it's so cool to think of. Yeah, like it was Nam that initially brought, well, brought our dads together, now brought us together. And my boss was a, she met her husband there she was working in a booth and like he was the band that kept was getting sponsored like from the booth oh down this way and they just gosh. kept by every day and got to be buds and over the years they like would go to nam and see each other and like they got to be close and now they're married and it's just like like she was saying there's probably so many stories about that out of nam it just it brings our industry together so yeah uh, another tangent but yeah it's really cool to like reflect on and be grateful that it, it really it brought you and I together and now now we're doing yeah this. <laughs> and we had just some incredible women as our mentors to help guide us so yeah. shout out to Shalice to Samantha to Laura to Claire mm -hmm. to Jean oh my gosh to not to to Sharon in the in the member center. If anybody knows Sharon, oh my God, Sharon babysat me, and now <laughs> she's just like she is this goddess and killing it. There's Sharon. There's like uh, we could shout out everybody that we love at Nam all day, but ugh, weird. And even not at Nam, like on our and our uh, um, Suzanne D'Addario that sat down with you and with me at Nam's, and now you're working there. And we all heard your story with her. Like it's just it's magical. 
It's the most wonderful week in the of the year. That's how I like to call it. Exactly. So on that tangent, which ties into product and manufacturers and stuff, Natalie, why don't you tell us about uh, our guest today? I'm so excited to learn about her. Our first guest for season two for 2021 is Elisa Jansen-Jones, who is the senior manager of online learning at Con Selmer. And we talk about how she started her career as a music teacher in the classroom and how she transformed her career to help educators all across the country and the world and just her passion for music education and advocacy. She does have a session during Believe in Music Week, which we talk about in the episode. So stay tuned to learn more about that. And we're just so excited to kick off the year with such an awesome episode. Yeah, from what I've, I'm about halfway through editing it, everybody, and I can can confirm this woman has a calling. It's so cool. Like she she was she is born to educate and to help educators, which is what our world needs. And it's so cool to hear her passion. And I feel like everybody will be inspired by by that passion. Even if you're not an educator or or working in that, we can all we can all be invested in the next generation and and learn from someone who is as as driven and, and passionate as as Elisa is. So good stuff. Absolutely. So with that said, we usually sign off saying like, let's get into it. Let's get started. But I think we should do something that'll make people really happy. So from Stephanie and I, should we say it together? Yeah, I would say if there's going to be a lag, but we can try. One, two, three. Have, Have a good, good show. show. <laughs> We tried. We tried. Hi, Elisa. Thank you so much for joining Swim Masters. We're so excited to have you on the first episode of season two. Woo. That's awesome. Thank you for having me, Natalie. (laughs) Of course. So I know you began your career as a music educator, but I would love to learn about your career journey as a whole and um, how you went from teaching to now working at Con Selmer. Boy, it's, uh, you know, it's crazy the twists and turns that, you know, I went through the candy cane forest and the, uh, <laughs> I came out the Lincoln Tunnel. You, you've seen Elf, surely. Mm-hmm. Okay. Absolutely. So, um, gosh, so, well, I started teaching and loved it. Dream job. I still remember standing on the podium and conducting my seventh grade band. And one of these kids, this 14-year-old, raises his hand and says, Ms. Jones, what is your dream job? And I was like, well, that doesn't really have to do with the piece we're learning right now, but you know, this is it. This is my dream job. I absolutely love it, which made it really difficult to quit that job. (laughs) <laughs> when, uh, cause I, I had my second baby and, uh, my husband at the time was like trying to be the stay at home dad, but also go to school. And one day I came home and he goes, you know, you're way better at this parenting stuff. So I decided to, uh, raise my children actually. But of course I am a music teacher. I wanted to continue teaching. So what did I do? I opened a private lesson studio and I did that for several years 
And I, I did not have a typical studio. It was the complete opposite because strategically, when you live in a town with two universities, you're not going to be the first choice horn teacher. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. There's a lot of other horn teachers. So I ended up uh, really going after the students who nobody else wanted. So I had students with that were homeschooled, that were uh, atypical, that had developmental and physical disabilities, uh, those that had autism and Asperger's. And, and so I really learned so, so, so much. So that was my first real delve into opening and starting my own business. And the path continued to, well, then if I was running a business and I wanted to get a master's degree, I would just get an MBA, right? So then I started, and tell me if I'm going down too long of a winding path, but when I was about to graduate with my MBA, we were talking in my cohort about, well, what is everybody going to do with their degree? And I was like, well, I think I'll just continue building my own business. And then one of the other people said that he was going to do some business consulting. And I was like, oh, you know, that's actually a good idea. So I did that for a few years because my kids were still at home and little and built a pretty decent portfolio of just helping businesses be better. And so then I realized one day that I was dispassionate about helping you know, solopreneurs start their next energy coaching career and decided that I needed to live a little more passionately and do things that I cared about. And what did I care about? Music teaching, right? So Mm -hmm. I decided to put everything that I had learned running my own business, running my own studio, and being really strategic because my emphasis in, in my MBA degree was strategy and management. And so I thought, okay, whether it makes me any money or not, I'm going to help music teachers. And so that led me into, first it was the blog, then it was speaking, then it was podcast, then it was authoring. And the long road has led me now to Con Selmer, where I'm so privileged to be able to work with some of the most amazing educators and business people that you'll ever meet. And I get to do what I love, which is help music teachers. I love that. Was that too long of a journey? No, I, it, it, beautiful. I love hearing that when you stepped away from teaching, got your MBA, went down a whole different path, but realized that you wanted that passion again and to just continue to follow what you were passionate about to lead you to where you are today. I think that's amazing and it show and it can show others that they can do the same thing. Yeah, truly if you're passionate about it, then you'll have the energy for it. You'll be excited for it. And the money comes, you know, if if it needs to and if you come at it from the perspective of I am solving a problem for people, you know, that is the true strategy behind what every business should really be. I couldn't agree with you more. So you didn't necessarily leave the teaching role because you work with educators all the time, but what made you decide to leave? You kind of touched on this, but what made you decide to leave the physical classroom to do the work that you do today? Sure. Well, I've had to leave twice and it has been heart-wrenching both times because I, I truly love teaching and I'd like to think I'm a little bit good at it. But the second time, uh, while I was doing this, you know, business consulting, building my portfolio kind of thing, 
um, I actually ended up getting divorced. And so I needed a job that actually paid bills so that I could get an apartment and live on my own. I mean, with my kids. And so the local Catholic school was looking for a part-time music teacher to teach elementary music. And I had never really taught elementary. I'm passionate about middle school, right? Like I never even wanted to do high school. I love the middle school age. That was what I wanted to do. And I was an instrumental teacher, orchestra, sorry. Yeah. Orchestra and band is what I did. And so taking an elementary job, I was kind of like, eh, okay. Um, but they hired me and I ended up hating it for a solid year. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I just, it's really playing with kids, but you know, I, uh, I learned to absolutely love it and love those kids. And if you asked me if I could go back and teach anything right now, it would be elementary music. And wow. I was at that school for long enough to watch my kindergartners become fifth graders. And you cannot live through that kind of life transition with students and not absolutely adore every single one of them. So what made me leave the second time was I had created an actual business that was demanding enough on my time that I once again had to make a very hard choice. The first time I had to choose, it was between raising my own kids or teaching middle school. And this time it was, do I teach teachers or do I teach students? And I had this opportunity to influence. And if that's what it comes down to, right? For me, if I wanted to really influence the way music education is in the future, I had to teach the teachers. And so many teachers were entering the field woefully unprepared for the modern music classroom. And here I have the opportunity to help change that in some way. So I could stay with those 450 adorable little creatures that I had grown to love in a job that I absolutely was passionate about and had like the dream job, kid you not, or go teach millions of students via their teachers. So that's what I chose. I love it. It was not an easy choice. Oh, I bet. And it's, (laughs) And it's important for people to hear also how those decisions came to be because it's not easy. Someone could, like you, could have their dream job but have to make this hard choice. But then eventually, which is really cool, is that it does come back. And you you do have the opportunity to come to come back and continue the work that you've always wanted to do. That happened with my mom. She was a music teacher before I was born. And then she took I think 10 years off to raise my brother and I. And then when my brother started kindergarten, she found a new teaching job and she's been there ever since. It can happen. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I mean, that that was my plan all along, truly, was when I decided to get a master's degree, I thought, well, I could be like my mom and get a master's of education. My mom is also a teacher. Or I could be like my dad and get a master of music education because my dad was also a music educator. (laughs) But I thought to myself, if I'm going to go back to teaching, I don't want to just be better at one thing. I want to be better at the stuff I didn't know. Right. I want to be better at the, the, the areas where I struggled. And I didn't feel like I struggled with the actual music teaching. I struggled with all the off the podium stuff. And I had worked my way through college in a music store, you know? So I had a strong business background. In fact, um, 
my wonderful boss at the music store had offered to pay for my college if I'd go into business and work for him. I didn't. I chose music education instead. (laughs) But uh, so I felt like even going into my first teaching job, I had a pretty good, you know, knowledge base. I had a huge network because I, I, all the music teachers were my friends and customers at the music store. And I was opening a brand new school and, you know, what's better to open a brand new school, but somebody who'd spent six years working in a music store, you know? Yeah. And even I did not have a good grasp of the business side of things. And so that's why I decided on an, on an MBA, as odd as it may be. The intention was always to go back to teaching and use that knowledge to be a better music teacher. Amazing. What are some of the skills you developed as a music educator that helped you prepare for working in the music products industry? I think you mean, what did working in the music products industry help me to be a better music teacher? Oh, oh. Uh, well, honestly, it was it was working in a music store, um, and I was so privileged. Can I drop the name Summer Hayes Music in Salt Lake and, and Summer Hayes Music in Provo, uh, Utah? Uh, amazing, outstanding people. I I worked there through college, like I said, and then I actually ended up coming back and being an educational sales rep for them and and helping in the music store later and putting my little newborn baby underneath the front desk with the cash register. I digress. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I was, while I was, um, you know, I, I loved my job, but I had to think, well, which aspect of my job do I really love? And it was the sales, right? right? I loved like bringing in the students and, and helping them pick their instrument. And you know what most of that is? It's education. Oh yeah. It's, it's teaching them about the different things in the instrument. It's about helping them discover their, their own skill and realizing that it's not based on the instrument. It's entirely on the player. And so that's really what helped kickstart my decision to go and continue in music education because it was the education part of the music products industry that helped me love teaching. I kind of threw your question backwards. I'm sorry. I don't <laughs> apologize because th- this is what these conversations are for because questions can be flipped and flopped and you're still going to get a really awesome answer. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I mean, as a music teacher, I, there's so much alignment between industry and teaching. I mean, marketing is teaching. That's all you're doing. You know what I my assignment is for my doctorate right now? Write a white paper. For my doctorate of education, I have to write a white paper. So there is just so much crossover, especially in music education, especially secondary music education, where we're having to do uh, marketing, which is recruitment. We have to do advocacy, which is public relations. We have to do inventory and supply management. We have to do budgeting. We have to do fundraising, which is another form of sales. So it's there's so much alignment between the two that I'm surprised there isn't more connection between industry and education. There should be. I totally agree with you. I, and I think it also, not just with the music products industry, but other industries as a whole. The music industry is so small. It's so big, yet it's so small. But everything is affected by every aspect of it. You know? Without... Without the music products industry, the artists wouldn't have the instruments 
to make the records and they probably didn't start playing instruments without music education. You know, it, it, it all interweaves together. Mm-hmm. Totally. So you were an early adopter of virtual training sessions for music educators well before the pandemic hit. What motivated you to experiment with distance learning for music education? Marketing. <laughs> what? It was. I, <laughs> I mean, I mean, truly. So I, I love that. marketing. That's, what, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Um, no, I was, let's see, when did I do my first webinar? My first big purchase for my new business was not my LLC. It wasn't like my accounting software. It was a course on how to do marketing webinars. And I started studying all about online marketing. I got super into it. Was listening to all kinds of podcasts. Amy Porterfield, um, Pat Flynn. I mean, half a dozen others. Right? They're all so good and so useful. And do music educators listen to those podcasts? No, but I was. And so I created my first online course, um, which was grant writing. Okay. And I thought it was pretty good because I knew how to do business plans. And what is a grant except a business plan, right? So I created this whole model of how to write your grant really fast by treating it like it's a it's a business plan and then adapting it. And anyway, so that was my first big product that I was going to sell. But how was I going to sell that product? I needed to do a launch. And so I did a webinar. And what is a webinar? It's an online class, Right. So that's that's kind of how I got started. And I just loved that I could drop this knowledge, interact in the virtual space with people from all over the world. And that kind of opened my eyes to the possibilities. You know, when you talk about accessibility and affordability. So I really got into it. I'd done several webinars. I'd built a couple online courses. That kind of was my first real um, effort into online teaching. But then I got this awesome invitation to go speak at the National Association for Music Education Conference in Dallas, Texas. And that's not the kind of thing you pass up. So I'm like, all right, it's going to be expensive, but hey, business expense. Um, I need to have something to give away. So I guess I'll write a book. (laughs) So I... I'm just saying, this is this is who I am, you guys. Needed something to give away, so I wrote a book. Went to Dallas, um, had a, had a wonderful time. But before going to Dallas, I was at my community band rehearsal, and many of the the other music teachers in the area, of course, play with the community band. It helps us keep our chops up. And I was saying, hey, you guys should, you know, come hear me speak at our Colorado conference or or come to Dallas and see me speak. Aren't you guys excited to see your friends speak at these conferences? And they were like, no, we don't really go to those. I was like, well, why, why don't you go to those? Well, you know, we have to use our own money and we don't get PD funds and we have to pay for our own subs. And even if they do pay for our registration, we still have to pay for our membership into the organization. And so I, I made a list. Here are all the boundaries of actually getting, and this was the only way 
a few years ago, some of you music educators may recall that you could get your professional development credit hours. Right. Was a huge financial and time investment on the part of music teachers. So my friends were only going every other year at best. Okay. So I started thinking, how can we create accessibility to professional learning? And if the conference model is what we're familiar with, gosh, why don't I just make a conference that's entirely online? So I just decided to do it. I'm like, okay, okay. And this is your, this is going to kill you. This was 2017, almost four years ago that wow. this was in my brain. And I was like, gosh, if we, if I can do it online, that means I can have presenters from anywhere in the world. I can get the best presenters in the world. And it doesn't limit me to who can attend. I can have people attend from anywhere in the world and I can record it and they can go back and watch it. And I don't have to charge very much because it's really affordable and they don't have to travel. And they can now be learning from the best minds in music education in a really effective way without having to spend more than their entry fee. And what's hilarious about this is that I hear that all the time now as I'm helping other people copy my model that I've developed over four years of how to put on an online conference. And they're like, oh, Elisa, you have no idea. We can have presenters from anywhere in the world. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And attendees, they don't have to be just from our area. They can be from anywhere. And I'm like, oh, hon. I know. (laughs) You are absolutely right. So that's kind of how I got into that. And I created the International Music Education Summit. And the first year, I was like, you know, I'm going to just do it. I'll invest my own money. I'll make it happen. I'll get sponsors. I'll tap all my friends who I'd had the podcast for a while then, right? So I'm like, I'll just invite my podcast guests. They're all great speakers. We'll make this thing happen. And we did. And it was such a strong proof of concept that I couldn't not do it again. So the next year I did it and it doubled in size, doubled plus a little bit. And so by year three, because honestly, after the second year, and and I don't want to go into the drama, but basically my website was entirely hacked on the first day and every system went down and I had to figure out how to pivot all of that from the attendees and the speakers and how do we figure all that out? And I'm happy to say nobody missed a thing. And the feedback I got was, oh, we didn't even realize your website was down. That's incredible. (laughs) I, I learned how to build a website in four hours. to replace the one that was hacked. Okay. That's a story for another episode. The point is I developed (laughs) this model over a period of years. And of of course, how could I not help so many more? So I, I went from influencing, you know, my 450 students to then 600 uh, live attendees at my conference who each in their turn have a couple thousands, you know, several hundred students each. And now through my work through Conselmer and through helping so many additional events and then my Facebook group and like everything I'm doing, the numbers are incredible how many music teachers I can now help. That's amazing. And it's, it's so inspiring to 
you were ahead of you were ahead of the game. Because in 2017, yeah. no one knew that we would be where we are right now. No one knew it. I mean, maybe people had a feeling well, that a pandemic was coming, but no one knew that we we would all have to teach students from home or in a hybrid model. Just the entire way we teach has been turned upside down. And because I feel like, and I'm just, this is my opinion. I feel like because you had this model already set up, you were like, all right, I know what I'm doing. This is what we're going to do to help these <laughs> educators. And you started just immediately. Yeah, I was I was perfectly poised to help people in the time of need. And the irony is I was cleaning out my travel bag, which I I think the last time I used it was Texas Music Educators. And it's the thing I carried around with me at the NAMM show. And I pulled out the flyers that I had been handing out as I was, you know, trying to recruit sponsors and partners and stuff like that through through uh, the NAMM show. And the headline on my flyer said, the future of professional learning will never be the same or something like that, right? Like this is the future of professional learning. And to look back at all the people who took that flyer and no doubt stuck it somewhere and ignored it completely, I would love to have yeah. them pull that out now and go, oh, hey, you know, she was right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. So it is nice on occasion to hear my own my own words come come back to me, but it's not about that. It's really about the helping people and the having a platform to provide them with the most pertinent solution that they need in the moment. Right. So obviously the pandemic hit in March. We had to change how we were doing everything. And you, along with Stacey Swanson, launched this Facebook group, which I'd love for you to kind of touch upon. Um, that has become the hub on social media for music educators to connect with one another and learn from each other. Yeah, that was inspired, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've... I, I'm a I'm a fan of social media. I know that people don't love everything about social media. I certainly get to deal with a whole lot of challenges right. um, through being, you know, one of the primary admin and founders of this Facebook group that now has almost forty nine thousand members. Wow! But it's it really is a community and and. Bless Stacy. She's one of my absolute favorite people in the entire world and so great to work with. And a few months in, we realized we couldn't do it alone. And so we opened it up for volunteer moderators. We now have a team of like a dozen music teachers. We're constantly in communication and they volunteer their time to moderate this group. And that's what makes it so useful. So we've really developed it. I mean, it could be a business on its own, right? How many of you have 49,000 customers that you're like right there, right? But uh, we, we will never monetize it. If we do, it's always going to be on behalf of a, a nonprofit that supports music teachers. But we uh, started to shape and design and create norms. So one of the first things that I did, recognizing this emotional trauma that 
music teachers were going through. Well, how do you fight emotional trauma? It's with humor. Okay. So I created a, a one day a week called Funny Friday, and I create one post and it becomes an announcement. And all day Friday, they can post all their stuff. Now it has a twofold, and I'm sorry, I'm totally going on a tangent, but it has a twofold purpose. Purpose one is, yeah, it gives us a little bit of levity. People now look forward to it religiously. <laughs> like if I'm late posting that, which I'm not anymore because I schedule them out, but when I would be late, it was like, Elisa, where is the Funny Friday post? And I would get like 30 messages from people. Where is Funny Friday? Oh, God. oh yeah. But see, on the managerial side, it was really to keep the news feed free of people just posting what they thought was funny. Right. So we kind of, you know, point them in the right direction. So now uh, we certainly have a lot of industry folks in the group. We welcome industry folks. Certainly if you are looking for what is going on in music education right now, that is the pulse. That is the aorta that you can stick your fingers on is this group and see what's going on. We, you're okay to lurk, but I see the value. And I always have a lot of other groups. They've kind of shunned industry people like, oh, if you work for a company, we don't want you. And I'm like, hey, if you work for a company, you're here to help. Right. You're here to help. You know, um, one of the best helpers in our group is a former music teacher that works for an audio company. Who needs audio more than music teachers right now? And he's an enormous help. Anyway, but we do want to give them the advantage of being able to post marketing material. So we have Marketing Monday. And then, of course, lots of people are doing free professional development workshops. I just did one tonight. So we have uh, Workshop Wednesday or PD Promo Wednesday. So we've really tried to, to create a space where the community can thrive. And it's become a really interesting challenge to try and balance the needs of the community with the relevancy of the group. Because especially with the the political uh, turmoil that we've gone through over this last, how long has it been? 10 months now or something? Yeah. Um, We have to have that balance because the group is called Music Educators Creating Online Learning. And so at first people were like, nope, if it has if it, if it doesn't have to do with online learning, we don't want it in the group. But then we had other people who were like, no, 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 this is the hub. This is where we need to be able to talk and share and discuss what we are teaching online. It has to be about the content. So that's why we have this group of moderators who all bring a little bit different perspective so that we can communicate and, and represent the group as best we can. And when we don't, I get to deal with all the backlash. And I'm okay with that. I love it. It's incredible. And if you're not a part of that group, I will link it in the description below so that you can check it out yourself. So I want to talk about the Con Selmer Institute because from a lot of people that I have spoken to, um, the Con Selmer Institute became you were one of the first major companies to host a big conference during um, the start of the pandemic. And from many people that I've talked to, that was incredibly successful. You don't have to divulge any of like the secrets that makes your planning of these virtual events yours, but 
Why do you think that event specifically became a model for others? Um, <laughs> I would like to think that it's become a model for others. I hope that it does, especially as more and more organizations are putting on conferences. It still comes back to me that we've kind of cracked the code. And part of that is because when did I start it? 2017. Yeah. So I've had a lot longer to try things out, to get the feedback, to adjust. And it really came down to my core belief, which this should not surprise you if you've listened this far into this episode. (laughs) But to me, it's all about the pedagogy. So it's taking what has to happen to make that pedagogy so impactful, which is what Conselmer has always done extremely well. And how do we translate that into the online space? So the first thing that I always do is train the presenters. I have a big surprise here. I have an online course (laughs) (laughs) on how to present online and how to do it well. And then we use um, systems that mm, are intended to create a robust and enjoyable experience, not for the presenters necessarily, but for the attendees. So you have to make it, it goes back to relevancy with the content and accessibility with technology. And that's what makes what I do unique and impactful. And I hope people copy. I shouldn't say that too loudly. (laughs) Pay me to consult you and I'll teach you how to copy. (laughs) But yeah, I still, I still get that feedback. We just, uh, when we're recording this, um, this last weekend, and, and I have six consecutive weekends of events that I'm hosting right now, but this first big one was the all national honor ensembles for the national association for music education which was very complex because we had 550 students over six ensembles, over seven conductors, and all of the coordinators and, you know, everything going on. And it was so wildly successful. I couldn't be more proud. Um, and why did I start telling you about that? Because it was freaking awesome. <laughs> but that, that was like the first, like, honor band sort of experience. And here's what's so funny, Natalie. i I mentioned that my dad was a music educator and I had this idea (laughs) back in uh, 2019. I'm like, okay, what's next level here? I want to host a virtual honor band. I want to host a virtual (laughs) honor choir. And I told my dad this. I was so excited. I already had it planned out how it could look, how it could happen, like the nuts and bolts. And I was like, dad, dad, dude. I am going to host an online honor band. And he completely shot it down and was like, well, that's not an actual thing. And there's nothing that people can learn in an online rehearsal and blah, blah, blah. And now I have people begging to do online rehearsals and how how can we do it better? And, you know, and, uh, oh, if only he was alive right now (laughs) (laughs) to see that I just, I just hosted a very successful weekend of online um, national honor ensembles. And we That's brought incredible. on, yeah. I, I mean, at one point I was, I was sitting in my computer rotunda. Okay. I am surrounded by screens. I have usually six 
when I'm doing, um, occasionally I throw in the seventh for the fourth computer. I need to get an iPad. The point is it's robust setup. I'm on screen with Canadian brass, which total dream. I wasn't even planning on being on screen, but it ended up working out that way so I could help field questions. And I've been a fan of Canadian brass since I could first pick up a horn, you know, and I'm just blown away at this. And then I look to my left and there's Wynton Marsalis. And I'm hosting simultaneously a session with Wynton Marsalis. And then I look to my other side and there is Eric Whitaker because we're hosting a session with Eric Whitaker. And then on another screen is Mark Wood, the founder of Trans-Siberian Orchestra and the creator of the seven-string electric violin. And that was my job this weekend. That's a dream. That's incredible. Yeah. I'm speechless for you. <laughs> Believe me, it's it's surreal and yet such and I don't come at it like, oh yes, I made this happen. It's look at what we've done. Yeah. Look at yeah. You know, seriously. we as a we as a community. It's incredible. So I'm gonna pivot a little bit and I would love okay. to learn about your podcast, Music Ed Mentor, and how it came to be. What was your vision vision behind it? And has it evolved over the years? Um, yeah. So I started with a blog. And of course, having an MBA and my whole goal being, I'm going to be better at the business side of things. So when I go back to teaching, I'm going to be a better music teacher. So I really have tried to focus on teaching music educators those off-the-podium skills. There are fantastic clinicians and conductors out there like, you know, Paula Kreider and Richard Saucedo and Frank Troika and and Aaron Cole Steele. Like, they are who you want teaching you pedagogy. But nobody was really talking about the the off-the-podium skills, how to run the business side, how to do advocacy, how to work with your administrators, how to not burn out of music teaching, how to balance your lifestyle. Those are entrepreneurial skills. Yep. Those are things you learn from being an entrepreneur. Life hacks, you know. So I started the blog first. And and then when I had a good body of, of knowledge, I actually got a a call from a friend of mine who owns a music store. And he's like, hey, I want to do some content marketing. You have content. How do I get it? And we kind of went back and forth on this. And he's like, well, I don't know how you have all this content without having a podcast. And I was like, huh, you know, Steve, I never really thought about having a podcast. But now that you mention it, (laughs) here's here's the funny thing. Um, my husband is a professional sound recorder, editor, and mixer. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. So I was like, uh, hey, hun, um, I think I might should do a podcast. Um, do you have a microphone? <laughs> of course. He was like, uh, yeah. The, the question is, which microphone do you want? So Anyway, so that's kind of it was his brainchild, and I was just like, yeah, okay. But here's where here's where it gets tricky, right? Um, remember how I, my degrees in strategy. Yep. So I thought, you know, I don't have a very robust audience of my own. If I want to grow my audience fast, I need to pair up with 
somebody who has an audience. So I started doing the research to find out who was speaking my language, who was giving out the similar information so that our missions could align. Because if I went over, you know, after somebody who, or, or an organization that didn't believe in, first of all, learning online or learning through a podcast and who wasn't talking about the off the podium skills, it probably wouldn't align and work out. So I discovered smart music was speaking my language and, and covering a lot of the topics I wanted to cover and they didn't have a podcast. So I ended up getting in touch with their like sort of marketing person. And after convincing them that doing a podcast was a great idea, they wouldn't have to do any of the work. I would do all the work and send them the content and they would publish it to their audience. So that's what we did. And it became the Music Ed Mentor Podcast. They did not want to call it the Smart Music Podcast because they, as much as they want to sell product, like all of us do in industry, they truly cared about solving the problems. And that's where we truly aligned. So we've been at it almost four years now, which is kind of crazy to think about. Um, and it's been a wonderful partnership. They've been they've been great to work with, especially now that they are the savior of so many programs right now. Yep. Seriously. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, part of it was uh, Steve's brainchild. <laughs> part of it was the incredible support uh, and, and technical effort. And and to be fair, those first few years, I did all of the booking, recording, editing, production all of it but the actual push the button on the on the publish. Um, and it was an incredible learning experience and it opened so many doors. Your your dad was on my podcast. <laughs> you know? Um it's it's really easy when you say, hey, I've got this great podcast. Would you would you let me interview you to get your foot in the door? You know, a, a big name in music education right now is Scott Edgar. Yeah. Um, he's a wonderful speaker and presenter. Have you met Scott? I haven't personally met Scott, but I know just like through the work that my dad does with him, I know, I do know him. Oh, they do it. They do a ton together. Um, oh, yeah. So <laughs> I can say, well, I knew Scott. He was on my podcast before the pandemic hit and all of a sudden social emotional learning was something that we could teach online. So yeah, it's been, it's been awesome and I still do it. I still love it. I'm about to post an episode with, um, the most recent Grammy music educator of the year award winner, Mickey Smith Jr. Yes. That's so exciting. And I will Mm -hmm. also link the podcast in the description below for people to check it out. Um, what advice do you tell current music, music educators, or more specifically, up-and-coming music educators just starting their career? Um, every episode is dedicated to that. But Well, yes. Uh, <laughs> tr- truly, the mission is lifelong learning. That when you graduate, you know so much, but you also know so little. And that's why it's really mentorship that we go after. And to help them realize that you can continue learning and targeting the areas that you need the most help and learning in. And also I'm trying to make these mentors that I bring on accessible to our listeners and help them realize that, you know, Dr. Scott Edgar, the king of all things, social emotional learning, he's an email away. And 
there and ready to help. So part of it is that connection and and humanizing of these wonderful people that we just love and admire and and uh, assume that they'd be too busy to talk to us, but they truly aren't. They're there to help just like we are. I love it. I do too. <laughs> it's, it's so, and with the launch of Swim Masters, just very similar overall mission. And I relate to a lot of what you said with trying to get this podcast, your podcast up and running and just get having this be an opportunity to reach more people, knowing that some of these incredible people who work in our industry are just an email away for any mentorship opportunity or any question that you might have wanting to grow in the industry or even just stepping foot in the industry, no matter what your field of work is. True, truly. Can can I tell you the big um, aha moment I had at my first NAM show? Yes. When, when I went as myself for my business, recruiting sponsors for my conference, I looked around at this incredible site and everybody connected to music. And I thought, as a music educator, this is what I'm making. I'm not making a bunch of mini-me's to go out and become music educators themselves. I'm creating passion in my students to become this, this giant body of people with a shared passion for music. And that was my big aha moment. (laughs) It's true, though. I remember that that was my very similar aha moment for my first NAMM show was knowing that I was surrounded by a whole lot of people that all loved the same thing. And they were all there for the same thing. And it was the first, it was one of the first times that I felt that I was at home in the community that I wanted to work in. And I always feel that way when I go back. Even honestly, as we're talking, Believe in Music Week is just, the doors have just opened and next week is when everything really kicks off. But just being on the platform and connecting with people that I would be seeing in person, but still, it's still this week that you're, Connecting with someone that you haven't talked to in a really long time, you still have that community feel. And even if we're not physically next to each other, we all know that we're here for each other and pushing everyone to do the best that they possibly can. It's it's so true. And you know I have a presentation this week. Ooh, what, what's the presentation? Did you know? I, I did know, but... Is shout it out so if people are listening during Believe in Music Week, they can tune in or tune in after. If you're listening or want to access it, it is called Seven Business Skills That Music Educators Need to Know, something like that. The Seven Essential Business Skills That Music Educators Need to Know. And you're absolutely right. As I was looking through all of the sessions and seeing which of my other friends were getting to have this great opportunity to share our knowledge through the Believe in Music Week platform that NAM has so graciously put together. 
um, it was incredible to feel that sense of community, even with seeing their names on the screen. Yeah. You know, like, oh, John is yep. going to be presenting like two hours before me. <laughs> oh, <it's> so funny. <laughs> but it's true. I, I mean, look, I have some of my best, dearest friends that I have never met in person. Wow. Yeah. I've never met Stacey Swanson in person. Nope, I did. I lie. <laughs> Take that back. She and I met at the NAMM show. Let me give a different example. <laughs> Okay, my friends. Oh, your dad, right? Absolute mentor, hero of mine. Never met him never in person. Never met him in person. Or, wow. No, and my or my friend Steve Giddings, who lives on the other side of like, um, he lives on Prince Edward Island. Totally, like, good friend. Never met him in person. I mean, there's there's dozens yeah. like that that. Uh, and yet we have we have a connection through a shared yep. passion for music and music education. Final question. With all the work that you've contributed to music education, what do you see and hope for the future of the industry? So that is really easy because I think about that all the time. So it's multifaceted. One is for the teachers and one is for the students. And for the teachers, I want to see teacher training programs that truly prepare them to leave the classroom of their college and be ready for the rigors of the modern music classroom and have all the support and mentorship that they need to be successful, to have long and happy careers and build thriving school music programs. So that is what I hope for the teachers. And that means getting quality mentorship extremely accessible and developing teacher training programs that focus on relevancy. And then for the students, this is our opportunity to remake how we want music education to be. And if we truly believe that the arts, especially the performing arts, are essential to a well-rounded human being, then we should have enough options for every student to be in some type of performing arts especially music. And that means having as many options for them as they do sports teams. You're here. Well, Elisa, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me on this Monday evening. Um, your story is incredibly inspiring and I have learned so much from you just from our 50-minute conversation. So I thank you for sharing your story and your wisdom with everyone. Well, thank you for having me on. I, I still have a long way to go myself, as do we all, and uh, I'm incredibly humbled. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Swim Masters. Don't forget to follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn to stay up to date on all new things swim. We'd love it if you'd share and leave us a review. If you would like to learn more, please visit www.smartwomeninmusic.org. This episode was co-produced and edited by Stephanie Lamond and Natalie Morrison. See you next time.